Welcome to another podcast from the BCC team. Our aim is to bring you a message that will help you live a better, more God-centered life. For more information, go to bccweb.com. So Mark's off skiing for a few days, uh, just uh, from today until uh, Thursday or Friday, I think. Um, hope he's having a great time on the slopes. Mother's Day, Mother's Day is so hard. I have five kids, right? And Valentine's Day is easy. They're just me and my wife. I don't have to think about anybody else. But Mother's Day, I've got to make sure that the kids are dealt with and I'm looking after her, as well as my own mother as well. Um, and I thought I'd come up with a little bit of advice, actually, some tips about... Uh, buying gifts for your mother. Some advice, things that I've learned over the last 20 years, uh, quite expensive mistakes I have to add. Um, first of all, my first piece of advice when buying for your mother is don't buy anything that plugs in. Um, <laughs> not a good idea. My second advice is don't buy clothing that involves sizes. <laughs> the chances are about one in 10,000 that you'll get the right size. And if you get uh, too big, then uh, do I look that big? <laughs> and uh, if you get too small, they'll just feel bad about themselves because, oh, no, I can't squeeze into this. So avoid clothing that involves sizes. Avoid anything useful, really. Yeah, things that are useful like tea towels. I've been there. Um, <laughs> cushion covers. That was an expensive year, that one. I, I, bought, I bought through some cushion covers from the kids when they were babies. We needed cushion covers. And... It seemed like the ideal ones, and it didn't go down well at all. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, don't buy anything, this is, seems obvious, this is the next one. Don't buy anything that involves weight loss or self-improvement. Yeah. The six-month membership to a diet class is not a good idea. I haven't done that, by the way. That would be, I'm not, even I'm not, not even I'm that stupid. Um, jewellery. You have to be aware of, be, beware of jewellery, because the jewellery that your wife wants well, certainly the jewellery the wife, my wine wife wants, I can't afford. <laughs> and the jewellery I can afford, she doesn't want that. <laughs> chocolate works. Yeah. All right, every time. Right, ladies? Yes. Mothers, chocolate works. Choc chocolate and flour is always good. Okay, I'll come up with, I want, I want you to uh, kind of find a scripture to kind of encapsulate Mother's Day. Um, and uh, this is the one I found. It's a brilliant, brilliant scripture all about actually about women in general, but particularly uh, this section is about mothers. It's from Proverbs 31, I'm sure most of you know it. Um, and it's just the last few verses, uh, or towards the end of this passage, it says, She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. And I'm looking round and all the mothers are going, yeah, that's me. <laughs> yeah, you got it, that's me. And all the men are going, <laughs> Looking incredible. Men, it's Mother's Day, you have to be nice. We know that mothers are one of our biggest influences. Abraham Lincoln said, uh, made this statement. He said, all that I am or ever hope to be, I owe to my 
angel mother. And my own mum, she was amazing. My own mum, uh, she was here a couple of weeks ago when Grace was dedicated. Um, but in our family, we, there were five of us, five kids, uh, plus my parents, plus we had lots of people living with us. My dad worked, did a lot of work in prisons, and so we, we had lots of kind of uh, prisoners on home leave and prisoners who, who had, were out on parole uh, would come and stay with us uh, as I was growing up all the time. So, you know, one time we had like uh, 14 people living in our little house, um, and my mom was just amazing through it all. So solid. Um, she remained sane on the whole. Not all the time, but mostly. Um, and for 30 years, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. For 30 years, she, she served the family leftovers. The original meal from 1968 was never found, but <laughs> she, the things she did with leftovers was amazing. When it came to mealtime, my mom, she always made sure that we had a choice. Take it or leave it. <laughs> And if you knew my mum, you'd better take it. <laughs> so our mothers have a huge influence on who we are and who we grow up to be. And I've made, over the last 20 years since I've been married, I've made decisions. And looking back, I look at the decisions that I've made, and I say, yeah, that's, that's exactly the same decision that my mum would have made. You know, she really did influence me. And I think that's, it's a good thing. I'm, I am, I'm in awe of my, my parents. And, and I look back and I think, yeah, there is something of what I am. That, that came from my parents and as much as when you're a teenager and like, particularly later on in your teens and you're trying to establish yourself and uh, get your independence, as you grow up you realise actually there's some great things and uh, you start to value them that little bit more. And my mum definitely has made me who I am today. So my question for today then um, in this series, uh, Can I Have a Better Life, is who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And as we know there's a TV series of that title uh, where the uh, production team, they take somebody famous, a celebrity, and they uh, bring them on board, and they do a, a search through their history, through their ancestor, through their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and, and further back, uh, to, in order to find out what they were like, in order to answer the question, who do you think you are? Because uh, what they're essentially saying is, your, your ancestors and you know, the, these people who came before you in some way have defined who you are. So in the series, I remember Ainsley Harriet defining, uh, uh, finding out that he was descended from both from slaves and from slave owners. It was quite an amazing moment. Uh, sometimes on the show, they get good and welcome news. You know, they find out something really, really good and interesting, like Matthew Pinsent, the rower. Hey, he found out that he's... Um, he's descended from an uncle of one of Henry VIII's wives and even further back to William the Conqueror. Uh, that'd be amazing, wouldn't it? And sometimes, though, it's less welcome. I remember um, Esther Ranson discovering that uh, her great-grandfather had shot and killed the parlour maid. Um, and Leslie Garrett's ancestor had murdered his wife by replacing her medicine with acid. And you think, well, is that who I am? Really? Um, I hope not. So, who do you think you are? And as I was kind of thinking about this question over the last couple of weeks, it got me realising that actually there are different versions of me. And I suspect, like me, there are different versions of you as well. So one version of me 
is kind of the sum of all my best parts. Um, all the things you know, I'd like to be. So that Proverbs 31 woman, I'm sure you know, there are best part, that's the best part of, of womanhood and motherhood is contained within those, within those sentences. Um, and you know, we like to think of ourselves as, as, as kind and generous and hardworking and godly and clever and creative. It's, this is the version that we like other people to see of us. It's the version that, uh, if you go to a funeral, it's the version that's spoke about at the funeral, the best parts, the version of us that's all, the, all those, the best things about us. Um, if at a funeral they were a little bit more honest when they d- delivered the eulogy, um, I can imagine them saying, Adam, well, he was, he was an interesting person. He was really, really quite tall. Um, he was messed up in a few ways, quite selfish in a lot of ways. Bit of an idiot, really, sometimes. Those are the things that you don't want to hear at a funeral. You want to hear the good bits. But actually, there is a version of me that is that person, that is that messed up person. And there's a version of ourselves, I think, that's like that. Right? No, it's just me. <laughs> and these, these are the, these, this is the version of you that the people closest to you will know about. Okay, your closest family and the people who you kind of really let in. And those of you who've got kids, okay, your, mo- uh, your mothers and fathers, we know that our kids have different versions, right? Because you, you know, they're invited out to a friend's house for tea and to play or whatever, and then they're delivered back, and their friend's mother goes, oh, they were a, they were a dream. <laughs> they were wonderful. They were so polite. They were, they were amazing. And, and you're just standing at the doorstep going, well, whose kids did you have? <laughs> you know? yeah. Our kids have different versions that, that come out at different times, and when they're at home with you, often they're not like that. Again, I don't think this is just me. So there's different versions of us that come out at different times. Sometimes the good bits, sometimes the not-so-good bits. And often or usually perhaps a mixture of the two. And I wonder which version of you is here today? Maybe you, again, like me, maybe you have a Sunday version, a church version. Yeah, this is the version I'm going to wear today because I've got to go to church and see all those people and I need them to see the best side of me. I certainly do that quite a lot. Maybe you do too. And, and the truth is there is potential in us to be all these different versions of ourselves and we do have the power at any given moment to decide and to choose which version we're going to let loose. Paul writing to uh, the Romans uh, in chapter 7 he makes some great statements he talks about um, about the war that's waging in him he said I know the good I want to do and yet I don't do it and the the bad stuff I don't want to do those are the things I end up doing there's a war between what I know I should do and what I do. And he's talking about these different things going on, on inside him. And again, at another point, he says, uh, you know, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. We know that there is sin and bad stuff in us. And we have to decide not to let it reign. And we have to kind of submit to God and accept God's righteousness. And it's hard. 
So over the last few weeks, we've been working through this series, Can I Have a Better Life? And what elements need to be in place for me to have this better life? And I think that having a better life is actually intrinsically linked to the version of ourselves we are wearing. I suspect that most of us would agree that having a better life is actually, we found it, is not really connected to what happens to us. It's not connected to what happens to us. It's almost always connected to our response to what happens to us. And uh, there's a statement that I, I kind of put together. It's on the screen there. Events and circumstances can be good or bad. But our response... Let's go to the next slide. Our circumstances can be good or bad, but our response can always be good. So whatever happens, whatever external things happen to us, actually our response to those things can always be good. Okay? They don't determine our response. And we know this because, we can, again, we can look in Scripture. Uh, in the book of Job, we see all those terrible things that happen to Job. If you think you're, you're going through a difficult time, you know, he lost everything, he lost his family, he lost all his children, um, and his, his well-being and his health, it all went. And there's a great verse, it says in, in chapter 1, verse 22, it says, in all this, Job did not sin. His response, despite all these bad circumstances, his response was good. And in Hebrews 4.15, we read this about Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is enabled to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So Jesus, he was able to wear the best version of himself at all times. The best version. He never slipped back into, into the other versions of him coming out. He always managed uh, to have the best version of himself. And now I know, and this is what I, I, I don't want to uh, kind of make the mistake of, of thinking this, I know that we can pretend to be wearing our good version, when actually inside our motives are not good. Okay, we can put on a front. We can say, "Look at me! I am, I am the you know this is this is the best version of me. I'm, I'm showing you what a good I am." And yet inside our motives can be pretty terrible. We know that God actually looks at the heart. He knows what's going on inside of us, and and actually that's the thing we need to get right. Um, we are transformed by renewing our mind. That's how we're transformed. Again, that's Paul writing to the Romans says that. Uh, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will know what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So how does this tie into uh, our passage, our passage in Ruth? Well, over the last couple of months, we've got to know the characters of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz uh, pretty well. And... At different points over the weeks, we've got to see different versions of these, of these people, of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. First of all, there's Naomi. Right from the beginning, um, we, saw, uh, we saw the version of her that actually made wrong decision. Yeah? She made a decision to, to move away from the place of God's blessing and move to Moab. Um, in order to pursue what she thought was a better life. And um, we see that she was a little bit full of herself, full of her own self-importance. And we know that um, in this version of Naomi, she ended up empty. 
But also, there's another version of Naomi, there's another side to Naomi that we haven't spent much time looking at. The fact that she was in Moab all those years with Ruth, and there was some aspect of Naomi that attracted Ruth to Naomi's God and made Ruth want to you know, leave her culture, her country, her country's gods in order to pursue the God of Naomi. So that Naomi definitely must have had a version of her that was, that was attractive to Ruth and you know, um, was godly. And also there's a version of Naomi that has been giving wise advice to Ruth over the last couple of weeks. You know, telling her how to pursue Boaz in marriage. Um, so there's Naomi. There's also Ruth. There's a version of Ruth that's the, the foreigner, that's the outsider, the alien, who is um, not, not worthy of um, anything uh, kind of in, in, in Bethlehem. And then there's the version, version of Ruth that was presented a few weeks ago that uh, presents herself as eligible, as um, able to ask Boaz's hand in marriage. And then there's also Boaz. There's the version of Boaz that's the um, upright man of standing in the community, the respected person, the landowner, the wealthy individual, the, the older man with, with the respect of, of the Bethlehem community. And then there's the version of Boaz that was willing, I guess, almost to lay that aside and to accept this foreign widow. And maybe that was going to come with scorn. And he was willing to put all his um, assets at risk. We're going to read that in, 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 a, in, a, in a short while. Whereas the relative wasn't, Moab was willing to put all his wealth and assets at risk. And last week we saw this happen. We saw Deborah uh, brought a great message last week. And we saw how Boaz, Boaz had offered Naomi's land uh, to the relative who accepted, who said, "Yeah, I will. I will definitely want. To, I'll buy Naomi's land of him because he saw, um, you know, that there were benefits in it uh, in it for him to do that." But then, as soon as Boaz said to him, "As well as the land, you will have to marry Ruth as well," he went, "Oh no, no, I can't do that," and he rejected the offer um, because it would jeopardize his own his own assets, his own land, and his own wealth, and he decided not to do that. So today we come uh, to the next section. Uh, we're in Ruth chapter 4, and just a few verses, 7 to 12. And we're going to read these verses together, and then we're going to unpack this and look at how, um, what it can teach us about having a, you know, being a better version of ourselves more consistently. Here we go. So now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and to all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. Today I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. <coughs> Today, you are witnesses. <coughs> then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family, family be like that of Perez 
who Tamar bore to Judah. So let's see what we can learn from this passage about how it can give us a better life and what it can teach us about being uh, more consistent with the version of ourselves that we were. So first thing I want to point out and pull out of this passage is uh, something I've already mentioned, our motives. Getting our motives right. Why? What was Boaz's motivation for taking Ruth as his wife? Why did he do it? Was it because she was young and pretty? He's an old man. Why would he not? Was it because he wanted, he's looking after a, a bit of a trophy wife? Was it because he was lonely? Was it because there was something missing in his life? There's a film, isn't there? Uh, the film Jerry Maguire. Um, there's lots of great lines in that film. And in, it's one scene, you've got, you've got uh, Tom Cruise playing Jerry Maguire, who is trying to win back Renny Zellweger. And he comes in, and Renny Zellweger's there with all her friends. And Tom Cruise comes in and does this really impassioned speech. And at the end of the speech, he looks at hard and says, I love you. You complete me. To which you all vomit, yeah? Um, <laughs> and we know that good relationships are amazing, right? They are awesome. Um, but they are secondary to our spiritual identity as children of God. We are not made complete by dating or marrying the right person. We are made complete by our union with God, with the Holy Spirit doing that transformative work within us. Now people and society will tell us that having a relationship with the right person, that will enable us to be, to be the best version of myself. That will enable me to have my better life. This is a myth. This is an absolute myth. Okay, we, we get ourselves right with God. We are made complete by God. And if then we're in a relationship, then that's great. And you know, we know that the two become one. But the one is not incomplete. The one is not incomplete without a relationship. And Andy Stanley, um, he makes this great statement. He says, uh, I was listening to a podcast that he was living and he said, um, there's no such thing as a, a problem marriage. No such thing as problem marriages. There's just people with problems who get married. Uh, people, who are in, you know, people who are messed up, who haven't made themselves complete with God, who get married. So Boaz's motives then, what were they? Uh, what were they? Well, I don't think there were any of those things. I don't think there was something missing in his life. And in fact, he tells us what his motives are. In, in this verse, he says, I have also required Ruth the Moabite, Malan's widow, as my wife, in order to, my motive is, to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So that, again, my motive is that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his own hometown. His motives were absolutely 100% selfless. He was just being obedient to God. He was pure and he was godly, and he knew that this was God's wishes and plan for his life. And this is borne out later when we see the results of their marriage. Uh, further down the line, um, obviously we'll come to that later. So getting our motives right, making sure you know, we're not just pretending to be the best <coughs> version of ourselves, but our mind is renewed and we have the right motives. Okay, this will enable us to be, uh, present a true best version of ourselves. That's my first point. My second point is then uh, thinking with a long-term perspective in mind. 
Today we know we live in a, in a culture that's all about now. It's all about craving, getting immediately satisfied. And I talked about it last time, about our sense of entitlement. Um, and again, you see this all the way through society, this sense of entitlement, this sense that you know, something new comes out, I've got to have it now, it's got to be now. And, and we have to kind of war against we're against that. If only I had this now, my life would be better. I'd be able to show the best version of myself. And we know that mothers and fathers have to have a long-term perspective when it comes to their kids. Okay? We, as, as, as mothers, you know that um, you can't give your kids everything they want. And sometimes that means you know, disciplining them and getting their opposition. And that opposition is because you're willing to take that now because you have a long-term perspective in mind. You want them to grow up into the best possible human beings. And so it's always walking that fine line between getting respect from your children and also getting the opposition from the children. This is something that um, happens regularly in my house. <laughs> um, and we look at the Bible and we see, again, you know, uh, moving away from parents, but you know, Jesus and Paul and the early church, again, they walk that tight rope between respect on the one hand and also facing opposition on the other hand. I just think it's a natural thing in life. Okay? If you're living the right life, you're going to face opposition. Okay? If, you ju- if you're only facing opposition, then you need to ask yourself why. But if you're, if you're not... Again, you need to ask yourself, why am I doing anything of value? Am I, you know, because when we, when we live our lives according to God, society is not going to understand it. It's going to be foolishness to them. And we're going to face opposition. So the relative who rejected Boaz's offer um, was concerned with himself and with his, with his own immediate future. What did he say? He said, it might endanger my own estate by marrying Ruth. And he wasn't prepared to do that. And I would say, actually, he wasn't just selfish. He was rejecting his responsibility before God to look after Ruth and and do what kind of God had established earlier on when he was giving the laws about this process of looking after your brother's widow and and marrying her and providing her with an heir. And so he rejected his responsibility before God, whereas Boaz, he chose to be the best version of himself. The same circumstances absolutely apply to him. Exactly the same circumstances. He had just as much to lose, but he was willing to be obedient because he had a long-term perspective in mind. And we know that that long-term perspective really paid off and God blessed them through their lineage. Obviously, uh, David was their great-great-grandchild, I think, and then obviously from David, eventually we come to Jesus. What an amazing, what an amazing ancestry and lineage um, uh, that they had. Obviously, they didn't know that at the time. Um, Deborah last week talked about having a heavenly perspective. We are on the earth, but we're also in heavenly places as well. And it's the same thing, having a heavenly perspective on those decisions that we make. Um, In Matthew, um, Jesus' uh, teaching, he says, don't worry about today. Don't worry about today. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear today. God knows you need these things. Um, but what is he saying to do, to do instead? He says, but, he said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added anyway. We don't focus on the, all these things, okay? We don't have to worry about that. We don't focus on today. We don't focus on, on what we need right now. We focus on his kingdom and his righteousness. We have a heavenly perspective. We have a, a long-term perspective. 
getting our motives right and having this perspective uh, will enable us again to be the best version of ourselves in any given moment. That's my second point. And my third point, uh, just from this passage, which is um, being witnesses of God's amazing grace. Being witnesses of God's amazing grace. So, grace, twice in this passage that we read, Boaz calls on the elders and the people uh, to be witnesses of the transaction. He says, uh, today, next slide please, Uh, next one. Today, he says, you are witnesses. And he says this twice. And then in verse 11, they all reply, we are witnesses. So he's saying this is the transaction that's taking place and uh, the relative takes off his sandal. I don't don't even want to go into that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, so and, and, and there's a transaction that happens. And he says, you are witnesses of this transaction. What is a witness? Well, it's quite simple. A witness is somebody who remembers and then relays what they have seen or experienced. A witness is somebody who remembers and relays what they have seen or experienced. So in, in witness, a court, in court, so in, a witness is not asked to have an opinion. They're not an advocate. They don't have to argue or defend against or for something. What a witness has to do is just describe what they've seen or experienced. And as believers in Jesus, we are called to be witnesses to the transaction that we have ourselves experienced. We have experienced an amazing transaction. Um, And the transaction we've experienced, I guess you could call it an exchange. And the exchange is my sins for God's righteousness. He takes the bad stuff, the wrong things we have done, the stuff that is not the best version of ourselves, maybe the stuff that is the worst version of ourselves, he removes them. He's willing to take them. And in return, by his grace, he gives us his, his love and his righteousness. That is such an amazing transaction. It's Psalm 103. Uh, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. So great is his love for us. And he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. That's the transaction. He takes the bad stuff. He takes the wrong stuff. And he gives us his righteousness and his love. And then in Isaiah, it says he gives us a crown of beauty instead of ashes. He gives us the oil of gladness instead of mourning. And he gives us a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So he takes away our despair, he takes away our mourning, and he takes away our ashes, and he gives us beauty and joy and praise. This is the transaction that we are called to be witnesses of. We need to be able to describe that. We need to be able to relay that. We need to remember that and relay it. And if we are, Maybe you agree with me, if we are really, really witnessing this change in us, these transactions in our lives, if we acknowledge the grace of God and the, and the amount of work that it's doing in us and is done in us already, then the best version of us would come out. It would be there, right at the front, all the time, no matter what events took place, because this stuff is right in our memory and it's right at the front and we're relaying it all the time. So just like Boaz, who had this long-term perspective. He had the right motives, and he was witness of, uh, wanted, uh, we need to be witnesses of God's, God's goodness. 
So, quite a short message today. I'm uh, coming to my uh, response now. And I've got a couple of responses that I want to make before we finish. Do I know, come and play? Yeah. So on a personal level, I want us to ask this question. Through this week, I want us to be intentional. Which, which version of myself am I going to wear today? Which version of myself am I going to show? When all the bad stuff hits, when all the good stuff hits, whatever happens, which version of myself is going to be visible and is going to be there? Whether you're a mother, whether you're a father, whether you're a child, whether you're single, whether you're dating, whether you're a single parent, whether you're working or unemployed, in good health or not such good health, whether you're going through a bit of a purple patch where everything's going well, or maybe you're going through maybe the worst time of your life, which version are you going to be aware? What's your response going to be to those things? No matter what the circumstance, good or bad, my response can always be good. It can be. Having the right motives, having the right perspective, and being witnesses of God's goodness in our life. So that's my first, I guess, request to you, to, to think about this and to, and to inten be intentional about wearing your best version each day. Fix our eyes in a godly direction. And my second uh, response is kind of a, a bit of, you know, that's kind of an individual response. My second response is more of a corporate one, something that we can do together. Um, this week I had to drive up to Coventry on, on Wednesday this week to see um, my sister and her husband. Um, he's, an, he's an Anglican vicar and he's moved churches. He's been um, He's been put, uh, made as a priest in charge of a couple of churches in, in, in Coventry. And he had his licensing service uh, this week. And I went along to support him and my sister and the family. And the Bishop of Coventry was there and he, was, uh, he delivered a kind of a short message. But something he said just made me sit up and think. And it kind of tied in really well with what I was preparing for today. He said, um, he was talking about their church. He said, if, if this church disappeared tonight, how many people would actually miss it? How many people would miss it? And, so I was, and I wrote down, I was thinking, if BCC, I wrote that same question, but you know, if BCC were to disappear off the face of the earth tonight, how many people outside of, outside of the congregation would actually miss us? Do we really believe that we've got something of value here? Do we really believe that we've got something that um, we want to share with our community, with our colleagues, with our family and friends and neighbours. Are, are we being the, be the best version of the Church of Jesus Christ that we can be? Are there things that we could do differently? Are there things that we could put in place? It's not about programmes at all. It's a hard thing. You know, is, is there a way that we as BCC could be a better version of the church of Jesus? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. A big fat yes. Right? If our motives are right, what is our motives for church? Are we just come gathering together to be a club? 
group of people who enjoy getting together and meeting people on a Sunday. That's all great. But what is our motives? Is it to see Jesus glorified? Is it to see Jesus glorified in this community? What's our perspective? Do we have a heavenly perspective? Do we have a perspective that actually is a bit more long-term rather than you know, less concerned with our current reputation as a church and more bothered about seeing, preparing something that the next generation, seeing them getting strong and building a foundation for them to, to be even more impactful in the world? Making decisions that may be a hard no, but they provide a platform of stability for our future generations. Kind of like what we, that we do as a mother or as a father. Making decisions now that will mean that we face opposition. It's not a bad thing facing opposition. It's actually a good thing sometimes. To make listening and obedient to God second nature. And are we being the best witnesses to God's grace we can be as a church? To be prepared to recount and, and tell what Jesus has done for us and he's doing for us. To tell, to tell the story of the transaction. The transaction that he, he was willing to make. Okay? He didn't shy away from it, just like Boaz didn't. Jesus was prepared to die and to go through that separation from God. To make our relationship with God possible. That's a great transaction, something we could be talking about. We could see not just this church, not just BCC, but this community transformed. We could. There is so much potential in this room. In our life group on Monday, I had a real sense, as I was looking around the life group, we were all talking and we were all kind of bringing various things. And God just dropped in my heart the potential of our life group. And I feel the same way about all of us here all of us as part of this body, this, this family of God here, there is so much potential. And, and I want to see that potential realised in God. It's not about us. It's about putting God first, making Jesus front and centre. We could see this place transformed. We could get the amazing synergy of a body of believers pulling together in the same direction. God's giving you ideas. God is making you innovative. Let's do it, church. And within the, this uh, licensing service that I saw, there were, there were a number of declarations. It was, it was really interesting, actually. It was quite um, uh, ritualistic in a way, um, which you sometimes get in the Anglican church. I don't mind it, to be honest. Uh, but there were some really interesting things that they did where he moved to different points in the church and um, at each point, uh, people made a declaration over him and then he made a declaration that the church agreed with it. And there was one declaration that he made that I want us to declare together. Um, actually, I'm going to say it and you're just going to say, by the help of God we will. So, it's quite a powerful statement and really, I don't want you just saying it because we're here and you want to just, <coughs> you want to do it because the person next to you is doing it or you want to think what other people, I want you to read this now and then decide in your hearts, do I agree with it? And do I think, actually, I can, I can go forward with that? So I'm going to read it, and then we're all going to say, by the help of God, we will. Let's all stand together. Remember, only say it if you absolutely mean it, and you know, there's absolutely no pressure on you to do this. Will you join me in living 
and speaking the message of the good news of Jesus Christ in your homes and communities, serving the last, the least, and the lost, and responding with joy to the sacrificial call of laying down our lives for the sake of the kingdom of God. By the help of God, we will. Father God, we've made this declaration before you. And I know that you are touching hearts and touching minds and touching lives. And you are wanting us to move forward. You're wanting us to be the best version. Not just present the best version, but to be the best version of the church of Jesus that we can be. Father God, help us. Bring us uh, new thinking, new ideas. Transform our minds, Lord God as we seek to serve you, as we put you front and center, as we get our motives right, as we get our perspective right, and as we are witnesses to the good that you have done and are doing, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.